Before we open our scriptures to study the Word of God, let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank You again for our time this morning as we come before Your Holy Word and we hear You speak. We know, Lord, that audible voices are not what we hear, for You have given us Your Word, and in Your Word You highlight Your Son. We know that by faith in Jesus Christ there is salvation for all who would believe. Why? Because You said it. And so, Lord, increase our understanding. Enlighten our minds to know You. Help us understand the depth, the majesty, the wonder of our salvation in Jesus Christ. Help us walk by faith that we might follow You because You are our God. So thank You for our time this morning. May Your name be honored through our study of Your Word, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, let's take our Bibles this morning as we do and continue to worship God through the study of His Word. We are continuing our study of Paul's epistle to the Romans, and so if you're not there already, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. I I believe it would be safe to say that every true Christian desires to no longer be sinful. Every true Christian desires to no longer be sinful. Sin and battling against sin is a reality that each and every one of us who know Jesus Christ by faith, it is a reality that we experience this side of heaven. It is a reality that we know far too well. And if we are completely honest, there are times when we no longer battle against it. There are times as Christians when we simply just give in. And we give in all the while assuming that it really isn't that big of a deal. That to sin as a Christian, while painful, really isn't all that big of a deal. Why? Because we are now under grace. We actually stand in grace, the Bible says. So in reality, we play mind games with ourselves and we convince ourselves wrongly because the battle is difficult against sin, because the war is hard, because the war is constant. And we convince ourselves that we actually cannot win. That we cannot actually have victory over some sinful practice or over some sinful habit or over some sinful activity. And we tell ourselves that it really doesn't matter anyway because we are ultimately under grace. So by means of a self-imposed weakness and ignorance, Ignorance of doctrinal truth concerning our relationship with Jesus Christ, concerning salvation and all that it means for us in practical ways, we stop or we just stop trying to walk as we ought to walk as God's children. What we have really done in our minds and in our lives in the process is that we have become abusers of grace. We have become Christians who actually take for granted what God has granted in Christ Jesus. We become abusers of grace as a result of not really understanding and embracing all that we have in Christ in justification. We have in many ways made enemies of doctrine. 
we say doctrine divides. Love's the thing that brings us together. Doctrine are things that, that we should not talk about because doctrine just divides people and we set it aside and we don't think about it. And yet God, through the Apostle Paul, is telling us you better understand this doctrine. If you don't understand this doctrine, you are in danger in your own Christian life of being an abuser of grace continually and an antinomian in your life, of someone who says the commands of God really don't matter, and in the end, if that is your life continually, you may not even be saved. Through self-imposed weakness and ignorance of doctrinal truth, we can become like that. Now, We remember what we have learned already in our study of Romans. We have learned from the beginning that all mankind is guilty of sin before God. All are worthy of death because all sin. All all have the consequence of physical death in the human realm because sin is brings about death. But the reality that Paul is talking about whereby all are worthy of death is that all are worthy of an eternal death because of sin. All are worthy of an eternal separation from God forever in hell itself because of sin. And God, because of His grace and because of His mercy, sent into His creation His Son. Why? So that He might die on behalf of our sin so that he might die in order to eradicate the penalty of those who believe upon him and if we entrust ourselves to him if we entrust ourselves to what God has said concerning his son believing that he is in fact the satisfactory sacrifice for our sin as God has said then God declares us to be innocent in his sight That in a nutshell is the gospel. That in a nutshell is the transaction. And all of this is by grace. All of this is by grace through faith. What a wonderful truth. And yet for many, yet for many who even profess to believe those things, the reality and truth of that transaction seems to say if it is all of grace then doesn't that just give Christians a license to sin if it's all of grace anyway and it's none of us and and sin covers or grace covers sin and the more there is sin the, the superabounding nature of grace just covers all of that like Paul told us at the end of chapter 5 then doesn't that just give Christians a license to sin? Doesn't that just create grace abusers? I mean, if grace superabounds when sin occurs, then doesn't that just make sense to sin every day in every way so that grace is highlighted all the more? I mean, isn't the life of a Christian just simply to be that? Someone that highlights grace, and the worse sinner I am, the more grace is highlighted. Makes logical sense, doesn't it? I mean, from a human perspective, it seems to make logical sense. However, the reality is that to think in those terms is to actually misunderstand what it means to be justified by God. It isn't an understanding of justification in the sense of which God would have us understand it that comes to that question. That is a logical outcome of human thinking. If we are going to live rightly here and now before we get to the glories of heaven, if we are going to be heavenly children in life now as we ought to be, as God has commanded us to be, then we must fully understand our justification, and its implications concerning our lives. That simply just means this. If we're going to live rightly 
and continue to battle sinful temptations in our life. And we must understand our present and actual union with Christ, which has equipped us for continued obedience as God's children. Now, several weeks ago, I gave us a simple outline of verses 1 to 14 in chapter 6 so that we might have some way of thinking through what the Apostle Paul is saying. The truth of our actual union with Christ is so vitally important. And so I gave us an outline to just kind of Let us hang our thoughts on that. And I trust you remember that Paul stated to us first just the general issue that is being uh, addressed by him here in Romans chapter 6, where he's beginning to deal with this idea of being a grace abuser. And in verses 1 and 2, he lays out the general issue. What What do we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? Absolutely not. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? So it's a hypothetical question. The hypothetical question is raised so that we might understand the thinking. Shouldn't we go on sinning in life and practice if grace is such a great thing? That's the idea. Remember, we learned that Paul is not speaking about sinfulness by way of act. He's not speaking about Sinfulness in the sense of us experiencing sin, we continue to experience sin and battle against sin. He's not talking about that. Sometimes we get that mixed up in our head and we think, how should we continue in sin? Well, I continue to sin. And we say, how can this be? What Paul is talking about is a condition, a habitual condition, a condition that is, uh, which results in that continuance in sinful activity without any thought of change, without any thought of or desire to do what is right. So the idea of continuance is seen here in both verses 1 and 2. Are we to continue in sin? And Paul says, how shall we who died still live in it? That's the idea of continuance. In other words, if by means of being declared innocent by God, remember, that was something that happened to us, It was not something that we accomplished. It was not something we even contributed to. It was declared by God on our behalf. Therefore, in that reality, Paul says, we died to sin. We died to sin. In other words, we no longer live in its kingdom. We no longer live in its realm. We no longer are under its rule. We know it is no longer our king and our power. It no longer has power over us. We who died to it, he says. And so that is the general issue. We died to sin. There was a time when we were alive to sin and we were alive to its power. Not alive in the sense of like we are breathing, but alive in the sense to it had rule over us. But now we are dead to it. And being dead to its power, we are dead to its rule. How then could we ever continue in it? That's Paul's logic. That's Paul's thinking. The idea here is that it is ridiculous to even think that a true Christian can go on in sin habitually and without any thought of change. That a a true Christian can go on under the rule and power and control of a sinful life. Why? Because you no longer live in that country. You no longer are a citizen of that country. Your passport to the realm of the sinful country has been revoked. It has been taken away by God. He has delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred you into the domain of His dear Son, Colossians tells us. So how can you live in a country habitually and continually of which you are not a citizen? The implication and the only answer is that it is impossible. It is impossible. So to think that you as a Christian 
or that you should, as a Christian, go on sinning to highlight grace, even more is to misunderstand your union with Jesus Christ through justification that took you out of its realm and out of its rule. You misunderstand justification if you think you can. It just shows the reality of what you need to have solidified in your mind and your heart. If you are unified with Christ, as every true Christian is, then it is impossible for you to actually do that. It is impossible for you to actually continue in that realm of sin. You cannot live under its power. Why? Because you have an actual and present union with Christ you have been actually and presently attached to Christ. You died to sin. So, in verses 3 to 11, we get the reality explained to us. Remember, Paul issues the general point, the general thought in verses 1 and 2, and now he moves on to explain to us what he's talking about. And so I want us to focus our time there this morning. And like I said last Lord's Day, this truth seems relatively simple when we understand our death to sin by means of our attachment to Jesus Christ. Notice what is said to us here in verses 3 through 11. Paul asks the hypothetical question. He gives uh, uh, an answer to that, the, the, the questioned response to that. And then in verse 3 he says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. You see what I'm talking about. You see how, in in a sense, how simply the dominoes fall when you understand your unity with Jesus Christ. The real, present, actual unity through justification with Jesus Christ. How did this death to sin happen? How did it happen when it says in the first thing, how shall we who died to sin still live in? How did that death to sin happen? It happened, Paul tells us, when we were actually and personally united with Christ. I trust you see that there in verse 3. Do you not know? that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized, notice, into His death. In other words, if you have believed upon Jesus Christ by faith, then you have been united with Jesus Christ. And that unity with Him must be understood as a baptism. has to be understood as a baptism. Now the word here, does not mean water baptism, folks. I'm sure some of you who have read this chapter and, and read other commentators and some of the commentators out there, they, they put all kinds of liquid in this passage. They talk about water. 
There is no water baptism in this passage. Paul is not saying that when someone gets baptized after professing faith in Jesus Christ, when they get baptized in water, that that is when they are baptized into Christ and thereby baptized into His death. Not what Paul saying. And I, 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 I want to say it as clear as I can say it. Contrary, like I said, to what some teach about this passage. There is no H2O in this passage. There is no water here. This is a dry passage. However, there is a baptism that Paul is speaking to. In other words, there is a complete immersion that he is dealing with here in reference to us as Christians that has taken place with all true believers and it brings us into the actual union that we have with Christ. We are totally immersed into Jesus Christ. But the question still is in our mind, even when we have that clear, and even when we say, okay, there's no water here, we, we still have the idea, but what baptism is it that brought us into Christ? What baptism does that? I believe the answer to that question takes us back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Because here in 1 Corinthians, Paul describes for us or shares with us Exactly what he's talking about in Romans chapter 6, or at least what he's referring to in Romans chapter 6 in the idea of this baptism into the death of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, notice what it says. For by one Spirit we were all what? Baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we are all made, we were all made to drink of one spirit. It's a very important verse, right? In the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we find our place as believers in the body of Christ, right? When Paul says we are baptized by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Christ is the head and we are the body. You notice that. You say, well, where do you get that idea? It says body, but I don't see Christ as the head. You go to chapter 12, verse 20, and you get the reality of what Paul is saying there in verse 13. But now there are many members, but one Body. The idea here is that we are all one because we were placed into the body, which is Christ. He is the head. We are the body. We are placed into the body through a baptism by the Spirit. And so Paul is teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that we are not simply joined to Christ, but we are also joined to each other. We are also joined to one another. But the answer to our question about what is the baptism that Paul is speaking about in Romans 6 is answered here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It is a baptism, notice, by the Holy Spirit. By the Holy Spirit. Let me read it again in verse 13. For by one Spirit. He's not talking about this mystical idea of some Spirit out there that nobody knows about. This is the Holy Spirit. By one, by the Holy Spirit Himself, we were all baptized into one body. And what is the body? It is the body of Christ. We're baptized into one body. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter your economic status. Whatever it is, we were all made to drink of one Spirit. So it is the Holy Spirit that baptizes us into the body of Christ. It is the Holy Spirit that joins us with Christ. It is the Holy Spirit that accomplishes the unity with Christ. So what Paul is referring to back in Romans chapter 6 through the term baptism is our actual identification with Christ Christ 
by means of the work of the Holy Spirit, whereby we are immersed into Christ and immersed into all of the benefits that come with that transaction. Part of that being, as we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we are united with one another. So we are immersed into Christ. This is part of the reason, even though there's no water here, why many of us who are in the Protestant faith and many of us who are in the Reformed side of uh, theology and that believe in baptism by immersion, not sprinkling. Immersion. Full immersion. Why? Because it's a symbol. It's a picture of what happened. That's just a sideline. The idea here is that idea about our unity with Jesus Christ. This is what we are talking about. We are justified, and in that justification, we are declared innocent. That's what justification means. And then Paul begins to identify this reality of of how do you get there? How does this superabounding grace superabound all the more and yet not cause us or entice us to just go on sinning? The reality is you have to understand your unity with Christ. And the idea of your unity with Christ is an accomplished fact You are immersed into Christ and that transaction took place by the mercy and grace of God by means of the Holy Spirit. And notice how this union with Christ is described. Notice what he says in verse 4 and following. Well, we can just go back to verse 3. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized, you notice the wording there, have been baptized baptized, an act of history that has happened and is a done deal. You have been baptized into Christ Jesus, therefore have been baptized into His death. Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism into His death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Because, or for, if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. And what is he talking about? The likeness of His newness of life. Certainly we shall also be like that, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him in order that, this is the purpose, our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. You see Paul's logic? Very logical. Very systematic. Paul is saying that because we are united with Christ, everything that happened to Christ happens to us who have believed in Christ. Let me say that again. Everything, all the benefits that are in Jesus Christ, everything that happened to Christ, happened to us in Christ. So listen. Get this firmly embedded in your Christian mind. Get this firmly implanted in your theological understanding. The great thing about our salvation is not only that we are declared innocent before God. The the wonderful thing about our salvation is not only that we are justified, as wonderful as that is, it isn't only that we are forgiven of the guilt of our sin, as wonderful as it is to know that. The wonderful thing about our salvation is that in that we are actually united with Christ. Christ is in us. Actually. We need to realize that as Christians, this union with Christ ought to be in our minds. And it ought to be in our minds as a result of, get this, Christian common sense. I read this over and over and over again this week. And the words of Paul kept slapping me in the face saying, this, this is just common Christian sense. You say, what do you mean? Well, Paul means that we ought to know this truth. 
This is this ought to be natural to you as a Christian. We ought to to revel in our unity with Christ because of common Christian knowledge concerning our salvation. We ought to know it already. Notice what he says in verse three. Or do you not know? In other words, haven't you realized this? Haven't you realized you you ought to have common knowledge about this amongst yourselves? Now, think about it. Paul is writing to people in Rome, people he's never met, people he's never taught before, and he says to them, or don't you know this already? These are people he hasn't even met. He doesn't know where they are in the Christian spectrum of their faith. He doesn't know where they are in their maturity level. And yet he says to them, this is something you ought to know. This is something you ought to know. Remember the hypothetical question, are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? In other words, are we to be grace abusers? Shouldn't we just go on sinning like that? You see, you shouldn't be ignorant, Paul says. You shouldn't be ignorant of this, but maybe you are to this reality of your actual union with Christ. Don't you know, he says, notice that all of us, all of us, you hear what Paul's implying? He's implying the ridiculous reality of someone claiming to be a Christian and actually thinking that it's fine and okay to go on continuing sinning. Don't you know that all of us, in other words, you can't even think that there is any one Christian who can do that. You cannot think like that. It is. It goes outside the realm of common Christian sense. It goes outside the realm of everything we understand about Jesus Christ because all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus who are true Christians. There is no one outside of that. There aren't just some Christians who are in Christ and others who are trying to get in Christ. There isn't some who have been baptized with some special baptism into Christ and some who are trying to get baptized into Christ. No, we are all baptized into Christ. All of us have been there. All of us by the Holy Spirit, by means of that justifying faith in Jesus Christ, all of us have been baptized into all of Christ, therefore into all of the benefits that come with being baptized into Christ. There is nothing left out. You say, well, what are those benefits? What are the benefits of being baptized into Christ? What are the benefits of being united with Christ when it comes to this whole idea of dying to sin? Well, here's how Paul says it. We have been baptized into Christ Jesus. And those who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, the first three, the first benefit, have been baptized into His death. What happened to Christ in His death? Happened to us. And they says in verse 4, therefore we have been buried with Him. Just as what took place to Christ has, in reference to the issues of sin, took place to us. We've been baptized, we've been buried with Him, notice, through baptism into death, so that, here's the third, as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. We were baptized into His death. We were baptized into His burial. We have been baptized into His resurrection. And we have been baptized into His newness of life. So you cannot be a Christian without being united with Jesus Christ. It's impossible. All true Christians are united with Christ. No one's left out. This is something that has happened to us by means of the Holy Spirit. And so this is our new condition. It is not something we strive for. It is not something we attain to. It is not part of our sanctifying process. This is our position. 
This is our position. We have a new position. We are in Christ. You don't experience your position. You experience your practice. Your position is a declared reality. It is a done deal. It was accomplished by the Holy Spirit. So we have a new condition. Just as we were in Adam, we are now in Christ. So you cannot be a Christian and have only part of Christ. You cannot be a Christian and only be partway in Christ. You cannot be a Christian and only have a sprinkling of Jesus Christ. It's either all or nothing. There is no middle neutral zone. We, Paul says, are baptized into Christ. Here's how Colossians 2.10 puts it. We have been made complete in Christ. If you're complete in Christ, that word, by the way, in the New Testament is the same word translated perfect in other places. If you have been made perfect in Christ in your position before a holy God, then you Miss nothing when you are baptized into Christ. And because we as Christians are in Christ, therefore we are in His death, we are in His burial, we are in His resurrection, and we are in the newness of life in Him. This is Paul's logic through this text. So this is the first emphasis that we must embed in our minds and our hearts. This is why unity with Jesus Christ is so valid, so important. When we believed, when we were granted faith, and that faith was exercised, we were immersed by the Holy Spirit into Jesus Christ and all that comes with Him. This is why Paul can say to the Ephesians, you have been granted everything in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And that reality comes with benefits. It comes with implicational effects on our life right now. These aren't something that's future. This is something that has been, has taken place because of God, because of the Holy Spirit acting. And there are implicational benefits, there are implicational realities for our life right now. And so the first benefit that we have been baptized into, Paul says, is into His death. How did this death to sin happen? happened by our baptism. It happened in Jesus Christ when He died. We have died with Christ in His death. Death to what? Death to sin. Notice what verse 10 says. For the death that He died, He died to what? To sin. So if we have been baptized into Christ Jesus, and having been baptized in Christ Jesus, we have been baptized into His death, verse 3. Verse 10, what kind of death was it? It was a death that He died. He died to sin. We have been baptized into that death. When Christ died to sin, guess what happened with us? We died to sin. We died to sin. Sometimes we get the wrong idea. Maybe you've heard it wrongly taught before. You've heard someone say, or maybe you've heard it taught, or maybe you've thought that you still must die to sin. That you still must die to sin. No. Paul says we are already dead to it. We are already dead to it. In what way? In the same way that Christ is dead to it. We've been baptized into Christ. Christ died to sin. Therefore, in our baptism, we have been baptized into His death. In that same way He died to sin, we died to sin. How is Christ dead to sin? He is dead to His relationship with sin. Notice what Paul is saying in verse 10 again. For the death that He died, He died to sin once for all. So what Paul is saying is that Christ, when Christ died, when His physical death happened on the cross, 
He died completely and he died entirely to his relationship to sin. Not any sin that was in him, of course. We understand that. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, Paul says to the Corinthian church. Christ wasn't a sinner. He is without sin, but he died to his relationship to sin. The Father sent him into the world to do what? To save us. To save us who were sinners. To save us from our sin. That means that he came and he had a relationship to sin. And when he died, he that relationship ended. And so Paul is saying to us that when our Lord died to sin, he died to the sphere of sin. He died to the reign of sin once and forever. And those who are united to him have done the same in him. Do you notice do you notice in Paul's language that it is not a progressive thing that he's speaking about? It isn't this ongoing thing of oh I must continually die to sin. Our dying to sin is not progressive. Paul is talking about our position. Our position is not a progressively attained reality. It is an accomplished fact. In Christ, we have died to it. We have died to sin. Our previous relationship with sin has ended. That's what Paul is saying. We are no longer in the sphere of it. We are no longer under its reign and its rule. And therefore, not only are we united to His death or into His death, but also, verse 4 tells us, into His burial. Therefore, having been buried with Him through baptism into death. Why does Paul mention burial after death? Why does Paul have to mention that? Because burial is proof of death, isn't it? Unless, of course, you're being tortured and someone puts you in the ground and buries you alive and then you will eventually succumb. Burial is proof of death. Burial is the final step. Sure, you go to a funeral and someone is there and they paint them up as if they look alive even though they're unanimated. And sometimes there are people who walk around who look like death. The reality is, burial is the final step. There is finality in burial. There is finality. And so in Christ, Paul is saying, we have not only died with Christ to sin, but that death to sin was final. It was final. We have been... Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death. You see, that death was complete. That death was final. The relationship was completely over. You say, why is that important? Because it shows the fact that in His burial, He actually was finished being in His human condition. He was done with that. Over. Christ was actually finished with His relationship to sin. He moved out of its country. Packed the bags. Moved on. He voluntarily came to that country to save us. He lived that perfect life. He died that undeserved death. And burial said to us, that in faith in Jesus Christ, being united to Christ, we too have been moved completely out of the realm of sin with Christ. It does not rule us anymore. We're finished with our previous condition. We died to it. We have been buried. We died with Christ. We have been buried with Christ. And Paul says, thirdly, we have been raised with Him. 
Therefore we have been, verse 4, buried with Him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. What does all of that mean? Notice Paul tells us how all of this happened. Right? We were baptized into Christ and then how did all of that benefit and in reality happen? It happened, notice, in the resurrection through, he says, the glory of the Father. I love this because the Trinity is involved in all of this. Jesus Christ is there. The Spirit's there. God's there. It happened through the glory of the Father. We know that glory is the essence of God's character on display. All that God is. Moses said, I want to see your face. God said, you can't see my face and live. I'll let my glory pass by. And, and his character is listed there. Certain things about the attributes of God. It's described in different ways in the Bible. I think the best way to describe it is just this. Power. Power. Unlimited, unassailable power. Christ was raised by the power of the Father or by the glorious power of the Father, we could say. In other words, the glory of God was seen in blazing display in the greatest way in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. When Christ came out of the grave, the glory of the Father was on display in its bright, shining way. So yet again, we must have this truth embedded in our minds, in our hearts, in our theological understanding. Christ could not be held by the power of sin and death. He could not be held by it. Paul said, or actually Luke in Acts chapter 2, verse 24, says it this way. God raised him up again putting an end to the agony of death, now get this, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Isn't that awesome? That's just such wonderful truth. Impossible. Christ could not be held by the power of sin and death. It was impossible for him to be held by its power. Sin's power is death. What is it? Humanity is no match for the power of sin and death. No match. But it could not hold Christ. It could not hold Christ. The glorious power of the Father conquered sin's power. And the reign of grace, and the reign of grace's power was manifested, and Christ was raised from the dead. Here's how one author put it. I think it's important we hear it in his words. Christ has deliberately come into the realm in which you and I live and which is the realm of the reign of sin and the realm of law. He has entered into it. He has put himself under it in order that he might save us. But that was only a temporary relationship. And what the resurrection tells us is that the temporary relationship to sin and the law which he had assumed, this realm into which he had entered for the purpose of our salvation, has ended. He has gone out of it. He is dead to it. He is buried out of it. He has risen to the other side of it. He is no longer in that realm. His relationship to the realm and rule and reign of sin has gone once again. And forever. So what was and is true? Paul is trying to help us get this in our minds. What was and is true concerning Jesus Christ in His resurrection is true of all of us who believe. We were like Christ, taken out of buried to it, risen to the other side of it, no longer in its realm. Our relationship to its realm, to its rule, and to its reign is gone forever. And as Christians, 
verse 4 says, We have been raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we also might walk in newness of life. Implication, we might walk in the new realm just like Christ is. As Christ walks in newness of life as a result of the resurrection, so do we. That's the implication. We are baptized into Him. We are united to Him. So what is true in the death of Jesus Christ is true for us. What is true in the burial of Jesus Christ is true for us. What is true in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true for us. What is true in His relationship to sin is true of us. We walk in newness of life. Notice verse 6 says, The old self was crucified with Him. The old self is crucified with Him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we are no longer slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. We are no longer slaves to sin. Death is no longer our master. Verse 9 says, It's no longer our master. No longer the master over him. Therefore, being united with Jesus Christ, it's no longer our master either. We are now in a new realm. We are in a new life. My Christian living is not something that I must strive for. I have to strive to be the to, to get out of this sinful realm. No, it is simply live according to who I am now in Christ. That's Christian living. Live according to who I am now in Jesus Christ. I have been baptized into Christ. I have died with Him to sin. I have been buried with Him because of that death to sin. I rose with Him by the power of God the Father through the glory of the Father. I am in a new realm, in a new country. I am a new creature in Christ. Any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. You see, we are citizens of heaven. Not in the future. We are citizens of heaven now. Our passport to the realm of sin has been canceled. We have a passport to heaven. It's called Christ. We are citizens of heaven now because we are united with Christ. So Paul says in verse 11, even so, just like Christ, consider Yourselves to be dead to sin. Consider yourselves. Reckon yourselves. That's what he's saying. Reckon yourselves. Consider yourselves. Don't. It's not some theory. That's what he's saying. It's not some ethereal thing. It's not something that might happen or could happen or, or if you work hard enough will happen. No, he's saying no. Now, right now, consider yourselves to be dead to sin. Get that settled, embedded in your theological understanding by your unity with Jesus Christ. I'm dead to sin. It no longer has power over me. Listen, the reason that some Christians seem to live so easily in sin, the reason that some of us, if not all of us from time to time, abuse the grace of God in Christ is because we have forgotten who we are in Christ. place to begin our Christian living is to begin to consider first who we are in Christ. Who are you? Don't you know who you are in Christ? That's what Paul says. Don't you know the question to go on living in sin to highlight grace is a total misunderstanding of who you are in Christ? Christ would never do that. Christ could never do that. And you are in Him. If you'll first consider who you are in Christ, 
you will not be so quick to jump into sin that is against Christ and against who you are now. The common Christian sins. I just want to close by reading a few verses on this whole idea of common Christian sins because Paul highlights it over and over and over again, particularly to the Corinthian church who claimed Christ and yet we're living so sinfully. First Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Do you not know that you are the temple of God? That the Spirit of God dwells in you? Don't you know that? How can you go on doing that? Don't you know that you're the temple of God? That the Spirit of God indwells you? Chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, verse 6. Your boasting isn't good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Don't you know that a little bit of sin is going to corrupt the whole thing? Don't you know that if you tolerate just that little bit, don't you know that's so against who you are in Jesus Christ, don't you know it's going to corrupt everything? Don't you know you're the temple of God and in you is the Holy Spirit? Chapter 6, verse 9 and 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It's talking about that continual reality, that, that idea of the question, shouldn't I just continue in these things with no sense of anything? No, don't you know that that just reflects an unregenerate heart? Chapter 6, verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? So he asked the question, Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? No. Don't you know that the one who joins himself to that kind of sin is one body with her? saying, don't you know that, that to go in that direction, to sin in some kind of way, is to join yourself with that sin, to become one with it? Chapter 6, verse 19, don't you know that your body, once again, is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? In other words, you just don't get to go live all how you want. The Holy Spirit lives in you. You're not your own. Chapter 9, verse 24, Don't you know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Do you realize what he's saying? He says, listen, a lot of people finish a lot of people finish. But not everybody finishes well. So run in such a way that you might finish well. That you might finish first. We who are in Christ, that understanding, that knowledge, that, that realization, that internalizing of that truth has implications for our life. It's a foundation for our Christian living. When we sin, we forget all of that. What happened to Christ has happened to us. Run in such a way that you may win. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful once again to be in Your Word. These times that we have together are so rich and so precious to us, and yet they seem to go by so quickly. So many other days that are lived here on this earth without joining with others who know You 
fellowship is stifled. The encouragement is few and far between at times. The onslaught of our own temptations and the enemy's desires to see us fall are ever before us and we go about forgetting who we are in Christ. So easy to stumble. So easy to fall. Lord, You have equipped us. You have equipped us with Your Holy Spirit that we might be empowered to obey. And yet You have commanded us that we walk by faith. You have told us what we have in Jesus Christ. You have told us what our position is in Christ. Lord, help us to believe it. Help us to believe it, that we might walk by it, that we might walk according to it in every way, that the things of this earth would be so fading in our minds and our hearts we wouldn't desire any of them. We would just long to walk as you have called us to walk so that we might win. As Paul said, we run buffeting our bodies, challenging and beating ourselves, if you will, that we might win the race. Thank you for the equipment to do that. Thank you for the Spirit to do that. Thank you for exercising our faith in that process, that it might be strengthened so that our belief in you would be solidified. Implant these things deep within us, Lord, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.